From the team at the Crokey Conference News Service, this is Crokey Voices. I'm Kate Carrigan. This podcast is being made on the land of the Gadigal and Wongal people of the Aora Nation, and I pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. Community connection, living locally, exercising more, enjoying family time. Some of the positives from life in a COVID-19 world. But what about unemployment, job insecurity, not having access to enough or the best quality food, or living in places with little access to public land or in crowded tower blocks? VicHealth has been examining life and health reimagined in light of the pandemic. How can we reshape society for a more sustainable, equitable tomorrow? The last thing we want is people to feel that they need to take low-paid work or indeed we make good jobs even more insecure. We've seen more farmers and farmers markets, in fact, going online on platforms like the Open Food Network. It's in a tenfold increase in the number of farmers who are going online and a 14-fold increase in the turnover through sales on that platform. What we have seen is that people are rediscovering the benefits and positives of social connections and enjoying and appreciating our environment. Job security and the future of work food sustainability and reshaping food systems, rethinking urban design to enhance local living, tackling inequity and ensuring climate change is central to future planning and, above all, not returning to a business-as-normal approach. There's been lots of debate and reaction sparked from the VicHealth webinar series Life and Health Reimagined. Kicking off the series, the future of work laid the foundations for a key theme. Access to a decent income and job security are fundamental to a better future for all. But even before the pandemic hit Australia, it was heading in the other direction. More casual work, a burgeoning and often unregulated gig economy and stagnant wages growth. COVID-19 has magnified those problems. Panelist and Assistant Secretary of the ACTU, Liam O'Brien. Australia holds the world record when it comes to insecure work, and that is a really unenviable situation for one of the wealthiest countries in the world. What it means is that too many workers have no access to sick leave, no access to annual leave, and no knowledge about when their next paycheck is going to come. We did a survey back in May and found that one in 10 workers, despite all the public health messages about staying home while sick and getting tested, will still go to work while sick. And that increases the lower the income level of the worker. And we know that that's because many workers, many insecure workers, people that are casual, gig workers, don't have access to sick leave. Well, talking about the gig economy, it's getting bigger and bigger as uh, more people are turning to things like Uber Eats, food deliveries, as other jobs disappear. How vulnerable are these workers? Yeah, look, this pandemic has accelerated a lot of inequalities. And yes, the rise in those platform type jobs, on-demand jobs has risen. And it is unacceptable. These are people that are even more marginally attached to good work. No access to sick leave. In many cases, no access to what is defined as an employment relationship, which means that they have any recourse against their employer for conduct. And that's not acceptable. It's not a safe way, as we've seen through this pandemic, for the community to be operating. Well, another issue you raised was the impact on mental health. Now, we've got really high unemployment, unemployment figures 
getting even higher and this insecure work, what is the impact on people's psychological health? Absolutely. We did a survey last year, 26,000 workers, and we were shocked to find that more workers report being mentally injured at work than they do being physically injured at work now. And that's troubling because really only about 7 to 10% of our workers' compensation claims are made up of mental stress injuries, which means that lots of workers are soldiering on in environments that are unsafe and unhealthy. And in particular, through the pandemic, what we've seen is that increased threat around job security has really magnified the stresses for many workers, whether it be young people and women who have been most impacted by the pandemic, who have been pushed out of work or found their hours cut, have been put under enormous strain, or whether it's even working from home and having to juggle educating children whilst meeting the demands of your job. Well, talking about women, you referred to it as a pink recession, but that blue solutions are being put forward. That's right. I mean, we only need to look at the labour force statistics from last week to see that women and young people are being thrown out of work faster than men. We know that the industries that have been hardest hit in retail, accommodation, tourism and hospitality, these are female-dominated industries. And yet the government's response has been infrastructure, building and construction. And whilst these are good and they're welcome and they'll keep big parts of the economy working, in particular those that are at risk of the sort of second wave of economic shocks, what we desperately need is proper investment back into social and community services, not just because it is about supporting female-dominated industries, but because these are such important parts of our social infrastructure. We need to have a much broader think about what it is that we've found as essential through this pandemic. And we only need to reflect on the fact that it's been many of the female-dominated industries that have shown through here that they are essential. And these are the areas that the government should be focusing investment on. And how else should the government be responding to this? How do we meet these challenges of job security and sustainability of employment into the future? Look, Australian unions have made it really clear that what we can't go back to is this high level of insecure work. And we need government to be focusing on creating at least 2 million secure jobs, good quality jobs, because that's what's going to get our economy going again. We know that when working people have money in their pockets that they spend it. We know that 60% of our economy is made up of people, households spending money. If we don't make sure that we create employment, we won't get our economy moving again. We have to make sure that we have good quality jobs. Now, a race to the bottom is only going to deepen and lengthen this recession. We have to make sure working people have got confidence to go out there and spend. The last thing we want is people to feel that they need to take low-paid work or indeed we make good jobs even more insecure. We need to make sure that we're providing that confidence to working people so that we can get to the other side of So having safe, secure work is critical into the future, but what about access to good, fresh food? With charities bracing for a surge in demand for food relief due to the pandemic, Good Food for All, How Do We Get There? looked at what we're growing in our own backyards, how community solutions can revolutionise food systems, and how COVID-19 has exposed the cracks in our food systems and the need to address the power of vested interests such as the large supermarkets and agribusiness. Rachel Carey is a lecturer in food systems at the University of Melbourne and she says in normal times around 4% of Australians or about 1 million people run out of food and it's worse for low-income, single-parent and Indigenous households. 
Others skip meals to get by. And she's very concerned about the proposed September windback of the JobKeeper and JobSeeker payments. Well, absolutely, that's the worry at the moment. And certainly anecdotally, it looks like there's been rising demand for food relief. And you've talked about food relief. It was one of the things that was covered. And the fact that food banks and food rescue are no answer. They're more of a Band-Aid solution. Mm. Well, the issue really is that at the moment, the way that as a country we're dependent on a system of food rescue organisations who are rescuing surplus or waste food from retailers, some from the hospitality sector as well, and then passing that on to community groups who are then passing it on to people who need food relief. There's a few issues with that. And one is that it's just not going to be able to cope as a system with rapid rise in food insecurity, but also that it's not a very dignified way for people to be accessing food. I think a key part of resetting that system is to really be recognising the right to food as a human right and for all elders of government to be taking that on board, recognising that right and also their responsibility to help citizens to realise that right and also treating it as the issue that it is, which is largely related to poverty. You also spoke about another way of attacking this is to change the way we actually get our food, to do it in a more diverse way. One thing that people have done more in COVID-19 is seek out local markets, local shops to find their food. So diversifying the produce, diversifying where we get it. I think they're two separate issues in a way. So one is just about ensuring that people have access to an adequate and healthy diet. And the second thing then is how can we also make the food system more resilient to future shocks and stresses? And one important part of a more resilient food system is to have diversity in the places that we're sourcing food from. So we're sourcing food locally, as well as from regional, national and global sources. We'd argue there's a lot of reasons why sourcing food locally is a very useful part of a resilient food system, but also, of course, a really useful part part of economic stimulus and recovery in the context of COVID-19 through supporting local farmers and buying produce from local farmers too. Some local farmers were already in the situation where they're in a bit of a cost price squeeze. The cost of inputs to farming like fertilizers and farm chemicals and seeds has been rising and the price that they're receiving has been falling and that's partly coming from the major retailers. So they're already in quite a difficult situation and then some farmers have now found themselves of course without their usual markets, particularly for those farmers that were selling into the food service and hospitality sectors. But there have been some innovative responses too by farmers, haven't they? Going online, selling their produce online and direct to consumers. That's right. There have been some really uh, wonderful and innovative responses. So one of those has been farmers overcoming the social distancing restrictions by going online. So we've seen more farmers and farmers markets going online on platforms like the Open Food Network, which is an online platform for selling produce and open source. One has seen a tenfold increase in the number of farmers um, who are going online and a 14-fold increase in the turnover through sales on that platform. We've also seen other innovative responses where we have seen a variety of social enterprises coming together to provide food relief to people in very innovative ways. And one of those ways being actually buying produce from Victorian farmers. As Rachel mentioned, food banks and food rescue, while they have assisted thousands of people, aren't the answer to long-term solutions. An organisation with a different approach is the Community Grocer, whose founder is Russell Shields. What we looked at is, well, how do we provide a more sustainable model financially, utilising a social enterprise business model, 
that doesn't rely so heavily on either government handouts or philanthropic handouts. What it also does is it puts value onto the food. So evidence shows that if you're providing food for free to people, a large percentage of that actually ends up getting wasted anyway because it may not be the type of food they want, may not be culturally appropriate, or they may not know exactly how to use or what to do with it. Through our model, where people are buying the food at a heavily discounted rate, but it puts value on the food, but they've got choice. We offer 65 different types of fruit and vegetables at our community grocer markets. So people turn up and they feel like a completely normal, almost farmer's market feel experience where they walk into these, we've got five markets across Melbourne, located predominantly at public housing estates. They walk in, anyone to be able to shop. There's no stigma, no barriers. Customers choose what they want to buy. Huge variety of fruit and veg that suits their particular tastes and away they go. How are you being able to do that at affordable prices? What we can do is we put a community markup on it. So we have transparent pricing. So we t- traditionally mark up around 25 to 30% of what it costs us to buy the produce. That means we can keep our prices incredibly low. We run a very lean staffing model at our markets. Because of our pop-up nature, we don't have all the overheads and expenses. We're not scared of profit. You know, We don't want to lose money, but we're not there to make money off our customers. We're there to provide them choice and access to high-quality fruit and veg at really great prices. Then you'd like to see this kind of model expanded post-COVID-19 to other parts of Australia. Oh, absolutely. I think what we've done is we've shown over five years over 90% of our customers feel a sense of community. So we know our model works. There's a lot of challenges within that model, finding the right location, engaging the community, building the trust of the community. Now, this all takes time and resources and investment. But in the long term, we've proven that these markets can work and can be viable. Tell me also about Moving Feast. What a wonderful collective. So again, in the COVID times, this has shown that where there was huge gaps in the ability for the traditional food banking and food relief model to provide healthy and in particular culturally appropriate produce, all of the flaws came up in that system. They had no access to volunteers, had no access to food, they had no supplies, and the meal programs I was supporting were closing down. So what Moving Feast did is went, well, we're a collection of social enterprises. So we've got social enterprises that are growing food, that are planting tens of thousands of seeds within weeks of the crisis hitting. How do we then use vehicles and the refrigerated vans and the assets we've got to distribute produce around? We've got incredible supplies of farm direct produce, so we're paying farmers, supporting farmers. Then we've got the front end, so organisations like the community grocer, but working with other non-profit food relief organisations at the front end this social enterprise model is able to provide them tens of thousands of boxes of fruit and vegetables, tens of thousands of meals that have been cooked, culturally appropriate meals, cooked at the street kitchen, at the ASRC kitchen. So we're not just saying, well, that's great, we'll give someone a meal and they're okay. We're saying, well, how do we provide them with home-growing kids? How do we connect them to the community more so that they've got regular access to produce? How do we continue to grow more food in a social enterprise model, distribute more food through this model, and increase that impact over the long term so that we can start to address some of the real challenges we have in a corporate-dominated food system. And we want 
great outcomes. We want to change the world for the better. We'll go back My name is Fahad Firdos and I work as Multicultural Strategic Engagement Coordinator for Gippsland. So the multicultural community in Gippsland area is quite diverse in itself. Um, so we do have people from Vietnamese background, Chinese background, Rohingya community, which is Burma's stateless people. And they all have different fresh produce growing in their gardens. We had an example of African United farms that came to Longwari and um, started utilizing some land made available by local farmers. There is certainly room for those connections between the farmers community as well as the multicultural community to be able to bridge those barriers and gaps where they might not have access to land. So if we could encourage that sort of connection where the local farmers also benefit from their wisdom and their knowledge in terms of their ethnic-specific food and also agricultural practices, it could be really beneficial partnership, really. There are some smaller initiatives happening within the region where people are making their backyard gardens produce made available to other people through swaps and a small market arrangement, sometimes for profit sometimes for non-profit uh, as a food security um, initiative. So I think there are some great things that can come out of this. Like me, were you one of the people out rediscovering your local community, walking, cycling and making the most of reconnection during periods of lockdown? It's been a big part of the experience. The Streets of People session, Lessons from a Return to Living Locally, looked at the importance of encouraging people to keep up those good habits. More walking or riding to school or work. US urban planner Anna Music from the Gale organisation in San Francisco stressed the need to transform the DNA of cities to reclaim streets from cars and make them public realms and also to address transport options so that the people most disadvantaged during the pandemic often those working at the front line, have safe options to get to work. She and others spoke of the need to create 20-minute cities with workshops and recreation all in easy reach. I think something that's really struck me is that many of us already live in a 20-minute city. We just accidentally use our car. And it's actually not the most efficient way to get to where we need to go. In the United States, about 50% of all car trips are under three miles. Uh, At Gale, we've worked a lot with scooter companies to think about how they can optimize their deployment strategies and have more equitable programs deployed in cities. You know, three miles is the perfect trip um, for a scooter. It's a perfect long walk. It's a great bike ride. So many of us already live in these sort of 20-minute cities. It's really about putting this into the DNA of our streets. We've had the great opportunity to work with Vic Rhodes recently on a streetscape design guide. It's sort of like the Australian version of NACTO, the National Association of Transportation Officials that we have here in the US. And we worked on a movement and place urban road and street design guide. And I love the tagline, which is streets for us to live, work, move, play, and stay. In fact, a street creates all of these different opportunities for us. And in fact, many of these strategies that we're talking about for making the 20-minute city more realistic, making a street that actually gives us all the things that we want, including connection to our family and to nature and all of these things, it's actually a lot cheaper than designing more arterials for roads. So as a lot of cities are grappling with budget cuts, especially here in the United States, 
between the impending economic recession. It's really an opportunity to align our budgets with our values and really thinking about how we can put people first in creating the streets of the future. It's what we've been experimenting with here in the United States. We've been helping communities as they open up, moving everything that was inside back outside. Restaurants are now outside. Retail is now outside. We're helping cities do that through designing their streets in different ways to accommodate all of that. We've talked about this idea about the hammer and the dance. The hammer is when we all realize we have to go inside to prevent the spread of this virus. The dance is really how we set up and figure out how we can create a better standard of living in the future. Something that I think we've has been underexplored in the urbanist community is really monitoring strategies for ensuring that we're opening up safely. That's something that we've been doing at Gale is helping communities track the safe use of their public spaces by adapting our public space, public life evaluation methods. It's something that we've actually have an app for, and we're really trying to help communities transform the DNA of their cities, their streets, into this resilient infrastructure that can serve us in COVID, in the brighter future that we hope to have. Councillor Jackie Frostacki from the city of Yarra says though Melbourne has suburbs that fit the 20-minute description, there's still a way to go. And she's also very concerned about apartment design, design that was laid bare by the locking down of the Housing Commission towers in Melbourne. There's a long catch-up. We've expanded from a city of 1 million to 5 million plus. How do you retrofit all of that is tough, but certainly it's now recognised for new developments that, yes, you must have footpaths and uh, developer contributions for footpaths, open space and contribution to that public realm. But, you know, that's for new development and still there's some new developments where it's not happening. Well, I think we're very fortunate in areas like City of Yarra and Port Phillip and Melbourne, which is 20 minutes, well, it's really 10 minutes most Most things are within reach of households within five or ten minutes. I think that traditional, we lost that traditional design where you had compact houses and units with front and back yards, might be a small front yard, but enough to grow some flowers and sit in the sun and chat to your neighbours over the fence, you know, keeping social distance. So they were well designed and a back garden where you can grow some veggies. That's served well in the lockdown period. I emphasise the hardest is for people in apartments, particularly those where they don't have balconies. Um, It's 100% site coverage, limited open space on a busy street. So apartment design needs to be reassessed. Yes, and we've really seen that, haven't we? It's been laid bare Mm. by the Housing Commission Towers lockdown. So how can we do it better to allow people to have some common space, some balconies, some uh, place for gardening. Yeah. Well, the Housing Commission have most of the towers are in open space, but they they have long, narrow corridors, too many apartments along a corridor, not enough lifts. They don't have balconies. Some of the newer ones do, and the windows are barely openable. It's been done for security, but at the end of the day, you need a smaller number of apartments around the corridor, not, not such long corridors. It is more manageable and pleasanter. Uh, we do need to review apartment design. We need to be informed by the older apartments that have 
balconies that were larger. I mean, mm. Most of the apartments are being built one or two bedrooms. Where's the study if you're working from home Where's and you've got kids? Where's the extra space where you can have hobbies and crafts and activities and you're not necessarily on the dining table? It's a lesson that we need to take on board as a result of COVID for a, a range of things, both the physical activity, the walking, cycling, keeping that up, the shopping, the living local, the shopping local, rather than getting your car and going to a big shopping mall. You know, there's a lot of local trust and loyalty to local businesses. And so there are some pluses and let's build on those and maintain them into the future. Hi, I'm Sima Abdullah, the Mayor of Greater Shepparton. During COVID-19, responding to the needs of the community and local businesses has been vital for Council. Well, this means fostering social connections, assisting in health and community services, reaching out to our local community and distributing information. Our community has also banded together through collaborative leadership to support our local economy and each other as demonstrated through the creation of Greater Shepparton Response, which meant working with the local community and businesses, sharing information and deploying resources to get through these unprecedented times. Council released the economic response to COVID-19 package that aims to mitigate the impact of the pandemic on the Greater Shepparton residents and provide immediate and ongoing support to our local businesses that are currently experiencing devastating levels of disruption. On the health and well-being side of things, we have seen more people walking and cycling and utilizing our shared path network during the pandemic. And beyond the pandemic, we want to continue positive messaging, reinforcing the health and environmental benefits of active travel. We want to continue to participate in statewide campaigns such as Walk to School, right to school, right to work initiative to encourage behavior change. What we have seen is that people are, are rediscovering the benefits and positives of social connections and enjoying and appreciating our environment and doing things that are healthy and they all contribute to the health and well-being of the entire community and uh, enhance the livability of, of our region. So that has been a very positive aspect amongst all these crises. It has given us some positive messages and reminders. At the heart of VicHealth's five weeks of discussions is the need to address equity and make sure everyone in the community has access to good places to live, work and play and that no one is left behind as we grapple with economic downturn and the other lessons of COVID-19. Making sure communities are listened to and empowered to make decisions and the need to integrate climate action and economic recovery was seen as crucial by the panellists involved in the discussion on addressing social and health inequities as we emerge from lockdown. British researcher Sir Michael Marmot, a leading global advocate for action on the social determinants of health and health inequities, pointed to statistics linking deteriorating health outcomes for the most disadvantaged in the UK to government austerity programs, saying such measures must be scrapped, especially with COVID-19 having a worse impact on those groups. And it's likely 
that those changes, the rolling back of the state, the regressive nature of reduction in public spending, it is likely that they were responsible for the stalling of life expectancy and the increase in inequalities. So that when the pandemic crashed down upon us, we were not well prepared as a society. And very soon when the data started to come out, the myth that the pandemic was a great leveler was shown to be a myth. Mortality from COVID-19 followed the social gradient, more deprived the area, the higher the mortality from COVID-19. And the pattern looked very similar to the pattern of all-cause mortality, which suggests that the causes of inequalities more generally, health inequalities more generally, overlap with the causes of inequalities in mortality from COVID-19. No more austerity. That was really damaging. But the other crucial point is to do with the climate crisis and sustainability. If we want to build back better, if we don't simply want to establish, re-establish the status quo, then we have to put the climate change agenda and the health equity agenda together. I'm part of a global sustainable health equity initiative. We had more than 100 global organizations have signed up to this initiative. And we're pushing something similar in the UK, a sustainable health equity initiative for the future. Should we be simply seeking to get economic growth back on track? No, that's not the future. The future should come from what the New Zealand Treasury did, to put well-being at the heart of economic policy, create the conditions for people to have the capability to lead lives that they have reason to value. Sharon Friel, I'm Professor of Health Equity and Director of the Menzies Centre for Health Governance here at the Australian National University. Professor Friel co-wrote a paper for the event with Professor Fran Baum from Flinders University's Southgate Institute for Society, Equity and Health. She says health outcomes have also been stagnating and going backwards in Australia. Yes, there was some recent analysis done that has shown that whilst life expectancy had been increasing over time and that's been fabulous. It's actually stagnated since 2013 and in fact uh, premature mortality, the inequities in that have widened uh, for men uh, and women here in Australia and that's by socioeconomic status. We've also seen it by living in remote rural regional Australia uh, much poorer health compared to in the cities and then the difference for Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. That was before COVID-19. Mm, so those things are getting worse but you did speak about the federal government's quick response in putting in place supports such as JobKeeper and JobSeeker and free childcare, showing that the governments can act if they want to. How good have those programs been and how crucial is it to have programs like that into the future? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that the, the government stepped in very quickly and introduced those sorts of policy measures was really fantastic. You know, there were difficulties and there still continues to be difficulties in accessing some of those interventions. And that's just disgraceful because that was to try and really help people who were being most severely affected by all of this, people who were already socially disadvantaged. But the fact that the government did step in and introduce the job keeper, the job job seeker, free childcare, uh, a number of housing uh, rent relief mechanisms put in place and the potential for that to help people who are already doing it tough and who are now finding themselves in situations where they just never thought they were going to find themselves. So it can be done. Let's not move to a much more austerity-focused policy. Now, a key point made during the webinar was powering the community to be consulted on answers and really being involved in finding those new solutions. How do we do that and how crucial is it? Yes, so from a health perspective, we know that there are three key things that relate to empowerment of us as individuals and as communities. We need enough material resource to lead a healthy and flourishing life. We need to have control over our lives and having voice in the decision-making processes around everything that affects our life. And so having community voice represented in some of these policy discussions, having community voice represented in very local discussions, programme interventions is essential for those policies and for those programmes to not only represent the need uh, of the communities, but it's also that sense of control. So yes, vital to have community representation at the table when policies and programs are being developed as well as when they're being uh, implemented. And what about addressing climate change? It was identified as crucial to our reimagined future. What's your take on that? Yes, if we're going to do anything about health inequities in Australia and globally, we have to do something about climate change. And the fact that there are common drivers of climate change, of inequality and of poor health. And if we addressed those common drivers, we would be able to improve the environmental situation. Things like healthy, environmentally sustainable, resilient food systems, the sorts of energy systems that we have in place. So one of the big things, if we want to bounce back better, can be done through a new green New Deal. So if we think about the economic policy responses in ways that support environmentally progressive employment opportunities, energy solutions that are based on alternate energy, not fossil fuel energy, all of that will have positive effects for people's material resources, which is good for health, and positive effects for the air that we breathe, that's very good for health. And I think sort of key to all of that is a political decision that says we want to think about the economy so that it functions to address these goals of environment, of better equity and of better health. While Australia hunkers down, ready to impose new restrictions, and the global community grapples with the reality that COVID-19 isn't going anywhere anytime soon, 
what of our health system and where next for prevention? VicHealth's final panel looked at lessons to be taken forward from the approach to the pandemic. A key theme was transilience, taking the best from the experience, dumping the bad to move forward in a positive, flexible way. Professor Anna Peters, the Director of the Institute for Transformation at Deakin University, co-authored a paper for the panel with Professor Lisa Gibbs from the University of Melbourne's School of Population and Global Health, focusing on the idea. I think that the concept of transilience offers a lot of opportunities for improving how we do prevention of complex health and social issues like obesity prevention even climate health, because what we've seen with COVID-19 and our more transilient response to that is that you're able to bring together many, many different stakeholders across sectors, so not just health, for example, but also housing, transport, employment, and able to kind of work together with a single vision and say, okay, if we have that vision in mind, which in this case is a health outcome, then what are the practices that we need to hold on to and, in fact, enhance? And what are those policies and practices that maybe we can dispense with in a much more agile way than I think we're used to doing? So the key to it will be working in a multidisciplinary way and making sure that those barriers that have been dropped to work in a cooperative fashion on COVID-19 stay down how do you make that happen? How do you ensure that uh, political barriers, uh, professional barriers don't just get put up again? Yeah, it's a good question. What is the secret sauce? Um, I guess that's why I'm hopeful that with the sort of test case, if you like, of COVID, that we might be able to now say to, to governments, to communities, to different sectors, look how important it was to take this approach to actually get a handle on COVID-19. Imagine if we took that approach and used it to really tackle obesity or health equity. So I think part of it is actually building the narrative around what we have managed to do successfully with COVID. And I think everyone has really been struck by the response by government that's kind of recognised that inherent interconnection between health and the other facets, including employment, income and housing. So I think that's part of it is really continuing to shine a spotlight on what we've done and the key elements that have, have made it both unique and successful. And then I think the second part of it is really just to start thinking about outcomes from multiple different perspectives. And I would kind of argue from health's perspective that health is everybody's business. And so how can we work with our partners in those different sectors to, to think about health outcomes? But at the same time, I think we have to get much better in health at looking at the outcomes that matter for these other sectors. And so, the, again, the more we can build those conversations, then we'll have more and more examples of, of how it might be able to be done in a really productive way. One idea that was raised was planetary health and see how our natural world is tied in with our health outcomes generally, taking into account climate change, a disease jumping from animal to human, probably because of encroachment on natural habitats. So can we look forward to a future where we will be taking into account those big picture items? Oh, I think we can definitely look forward to that future. And actually, I think planetary health Although many places, including Australia, we feel like we haven't been very active in that space, internationally, planetary health is quite a good example of different sectors working together in a more transilient way. And there are some really good examples of that now. There are countries that are actually saying, well, let's look at all the different outcomes that co-benefit. So we, if we do something that's about sustainability, then not only do we get better planetary or environmental outcomes, but we also think better health outcomes and sometimes better economic outcomes. So I think that there are and will be an increasing number of good examples from 
countries that are early adopters of actions for planetary health for a more transilient approach to prevention in general. For former Federal Labor Health Minister Nicola Roxon, it's a time for primary care to come to the fore and for more versatile systems, breaking down silos, working across disciplines and across different sectors of the economy. So I think a real challenge for governments to keep in mind, and it's just such a hard thing to do, is we really need to build systems that are versatile. That's why I really like this transilient approach. But actually, mostly government programs are in silos, they're for episodic care, they're very medicalised. It really needs a quite significant rethink if we want to value the ability to move quickly to cope with the health consequences of bushfire or quickly to cope with a pandemic or, or whatever we know will be more challenges that come in the future. What is it that would make our system more versatile? And I personally think that this is the moment for primary care at last to assert its ascendancy, if you like, in the health system. Um, that's not to take away from the fantastic work that doctors do and that we need done in ICUs, and, but actually we see through this that it's the nurses, it's the allied health professionals, it's those that communicate effectively in local communities that are the ones that can really help us cope quickly with a changing situation that we're facing at the moment. If that moment is to be maximised, we need to think about how we can better coordinate primary care. It can't be a cottage industry. We need to think about how we will have all those networks. And I mean, Big Health already does fantastic work in this area, but I think how do we scale that up even more significantly? The opportunity that we get to seize is that for an unusual point in time, people understand the urgency of the building blocks that at other times people see as a kind of nice to have add-on, you know, that prevention can get put in the box that we'll deal with it when we've got our ICUs working properly and we'll deal with it later. We need to flip that around and use this sense of urgency right now. And the language I think of comparing it to a bushfire is very good. People get why you have to act quickly, why you have to be prepared, what's needed in communities. For all of this to work effectively, we need good health literacy and that requires investing in our population's understanding, awareness and knowledge. The flip side of that or what might come from that is we actually really need trust in government. We need trust in experts. We need to think about the channels for how we communicate that. And I think sometimes those things are seen by governments, again, as a nice thing to have and, of course, something to strive for, but not really always something to invest in. This pandemic really shows us that if you don't invest in those things, you actually make your response much more challenging. And they'll have the governments will have around the world huge support for doing some of these things that maybe have perceived in the past as a bit of a icing on the cake rather than the foundation for building a really resilient health system into the future, or transilient, I should say, system into the future. For a final word now on moving forward into a better health tomorrow, I'm joined by Kelly Horton, the Executive Lead of Policy Development with VicHealth. Hello. Hi, Kelly. Now, what will VicHealth take from this series? How will you do things differently going forward after hearing from this team of panellists? Certainly every week we're reminded of some really important things about public health and health promotion that we want to put back on the top of our list. And I think we were also challenged to think about things differently. We started this series when we were in the first lockdown period in Victoria. 
and thought by the end we might be kind of coming out of it. We're clearly in a different position now. And I think what we're really in the position we're in now in Victoria is better understanding, I think, some of the challenges that people are facing in this lockdown environment and not knowing how long we're going to be in this situation for. Um, And also just thinking about what are some of the really key issues that our academic partners put in our agendas through the series that we now want to be talking much more to local communities about and really understanding the relevance of those issues in local communities and in different parts of the state. So one of the things we're really working towards is thinking, how do we take these gems of knowledge and really test those ideas and talk to our local partners working on the ground and their local communities to understand which bits are most important in different parts of the state and for different populations within our Victorian community and and what are some of the issues we need to be embedding into our work going forward. And are there key elements that you'd like to see incorporated into your strategic approach? I think probably the most important thing is that focus on equity. These issues of health inequities that have been with us for a long time have really had the spotlight put on them. It's taken us back to basics in a way and really forced us to think about the kind of key drivers of health and what we call those social determinants of health in a different way. And and I think what we're all talking about internally as we're looking towards the next phase and thinking about the next 12 months for our organisation is how do we really amplify the focus on equity in our work and make sure that the voices of diverse communities are heard, that the voices of people outside of Melbourne are heard and and how do we make sure that that's a key part of our work and really making sure that the partnerships we we go forward with the work reflect that diversity and that focus on equity as well. What about a more multidisciplinary approach? Is that part of the the picture going forward? Absolutely. I think um, one of the, the strengths and challenges of public health is that the change we want to make is often outside the remit of people working in health and so that multidisciplinary approach is critical to us being able to do our work but I think it's also the most challenging part of our work often. And I think what we've been reminded about through the series is that we need to think about working with other disciplines from their perspective. So the health people coming in and talking to transport or planning or whoever it might be about why them doing their work in a particular way is important for us is not probably going to get us as far as understanding what their challenges are and us bringing a health lens to that and thinking about how do we work with these other sectors in a way that delivers what they need and also makes the health and wellbeing improvements that we're after. And so I think the conversation, particularly around urban planning and health, highlighted where we need to be looking well outside health and we need to be working with a range of partners who might not be usual, who might not be comfortable for us, but those areas are where we're going to make real differences for people in how they feel connected to their communities and how they feel well within their homes and and their local neighbourhoods. And so I think you're right, it is about looking well beyond usual partners and thinking about where can we influence and where can we connect. That's it for Croaky Voices coverage of the VicHealth Life and Health Reimagined webinar series, looking at creating a healthier, more sustainable and more equitable Victoria for everyone. If you like what you're hearing or have an idea for Croaky Voices, please follow, like and share or visit croaky.org. And consider subscribing to Croaky News for just $60 a year to help us bring you the health stories we love to share with you. Until next time, I'm Kate Carrigan.